Now, I know that some of you who have been around, you're like, oh man, I kind of dread that like membership sermon series that you guys have because once a year we do a six-week renewal membership sermon series and that's what we're in the middle of this week. We don't usually talk about giving a whole lot actually in our church. We just talk a little bit about it during the membership renewal. I'm saying this a little bit for the benefit of the serendipity doodah moms who join us online. There's about 200 different moms that have LGBTQ kids who can't find faith communities. So they're joining us online and they're probably a little bit like, what is this church? They just started watching us. Um, but it is the, member, is the membership service. So if you haven't filled out your membership letter, you can find one back there on the table. You can just stick it in the box that's back there or you can fill it out online, which many of you have done. And this will be the last part of this, and then I'm going to preach, and it's a sermon I'm actually really excited about, but I'm going to invite Lisa Ruby up to give a little bit of a talk from the board's perspective. So Lisa was the president of our board of directors for the first two years. We rotate our board president membership, and so she's just now on the board, and she's going to talk a little bit about stewardship. I'm Lisa Ruby. Hi, I am on the board. Um, My wife is here. She's also Lisa, so don't be too confused. People are often confused. They're like, wait, I thought you were Lisa, but you're Lisa. No, we're both Lisa. So um, unfortunately, I have to talk about money. I hate talking about money, but um, it's like PBS or um, NPR, like you're watching some show. You're like, at night, oh, there's this Motown review, and I'm going to watch it. And you start watching the Bee Gees, who aren't Motown, but Gladys Knight, someone. And then every five minutes, they're like, we hate to interrupt your programming, but for right now, you can get this and this. So. Um, We're interrupting our regular scheduled programming to talk about giving. Um, My wife and I give online. We encourage everybody to give online, mostly because it helps us to budget. So we know each month and on an annual basis how much money is coming in. Don't feel like you have to give at 10%. That's a number that's great if you can. Some people can't, don't want to. My wife and I give less than 10%, but we feel like we give to other causes. Um, Sometimes during the year, the church will come to us and say, hey, someone needs a new computer, or hey, we need a new mic for the sound system. So sometimes you could do targeted giving if during the course of the year you get a bonus or you get a tax return and you feel like you want to bless the church with some of that money. That's fantastic. Um, Sometimes it's nice to know that you bought like a thing. We don't name it after you, just so you know. But but it is nice. Uh, One thing I did want to talk about is with the hurricanes and different things that you can give money to, like Lisa and I are very careful where we give. We don't want to give somewhere where there's a lot of overhead. And so with the church, we, we don't own this building. We rent space. We don't have a ton of overhead. And we have a budget. And you can look at our budget. It's um, with the, it's in that booklet. It's in the booklet. Um, you can talk to anybody on the board about the budget. You know where your money is going. We budget down to the penny. We do have some savings, but you know where it's going. And we're really going to try to grow the church next year. And there's a, there's really good reasons for us to do that. Um, I'll share quickly two stories. One, Ken was down on, he was telling me this, he and his wife were down on campus and so they went up to a couple of the tables where they were recruiting students for, you know, a bunch of new things when students come to, come to Ann Arbor, to U of M. And so he just went up to a couple of the tables, a couple of the churches, I'm not going to name them, but he said, so, you know, my, um, my stepson is gay and I just want to know if he would be included in your church. And he said it took them about five minutes and he had to go into lawyer mode cross-examination isn't it true that he couldn't be a pastor at your church isn't it true that you wouldn't marry him and his partner 
And after about five minutes, they told him, no, that um, his stepson would not be welcome in the church because he is gay. And so we want to grow the church so we can, it's, it sounds, um, we're not a mega church, but we want to advertise, we want to do outreach, we want to bring people here, we want to have events, you have to have food at events for people to come, we have to increase our online profile, because we really want to reach people and tell them our message, and for people who have been around here for a while, you've heard a lot of our, um, you know, three-minute stories, which end up being 20 minutes, where people are church shopping and talking about their experiences. We want to get to people. We hear stories about people who say, um, I read your book and I stalked you until I found you. And that's, that's a true story. The, the last short-ish story that I'll tell is Lisa and I were at a, um, a house concert, which was great if you want to hear details about that. But I dragged her to Romulus. We were a little nervous, like, oh, we're going to be the lesbian couple in Romulus. This is going to be a little scary. Uh, we didn't know the person. We knew the person who was performing. We didn't know the person whose house it was at but it was someone who I um, have been following musically for like 25 years. So we went, we got all our courage up, and we went to Romulus, and the people were really nice. Like we sat in the backyard chit-chatting, waiting for dinner, and uh, we found out that they were part of a church, a church plant that had planted from another church here in Ann Arbor, and they planted in Livonia. And so we're like, oh, we're part of a church plant too. And so we kind of bonding over the trials and tribulations about planting a church, and the worship director was there and how it's hard to be the worship director and you have new people. And so we were really like gung-ho about this church. Not that we were going to abandon our church, but we were just excited about this church. The people just seemed lovely. And they had like a rock and worship band, which I love. So Lisa and I, you know, went home and so we just did a little research on their webpage to see what they were like and, um, and how they would feel about us coming. Because after the concert, the one couple we connected with said, oh, you guys are lovely and you have such a beautiful spirit and let's be Facebook friends and we messaged each other and they were getting married and we should have coffee and, um, and then we got on their website and quickly realized that we would not be welcome in their church. We could go to church and probably everyone would be really nice to us and kind and sweet like they were at this concert but if we said, hey, um, you know, we're openly gay and we want to take communion or we're thinking about, I mean, Lisa and I have been married several times but if someone, if we were not, to, to one another several times, I should say, um, they wouldn't do same-sex marriages there. They wouldn't let gay or lesbian people serve on staff there to be pastors. And that's something that, when we met them, was not evident. And we know we've heard other stories from other people. So we want the word for our church to be out there and to let your yes be yes, your no be no, and, and have people know about us. So please, um, please sign up. Please become members. If you feel like you don't have a lot of money right now, that's fine. Still join up. We still want you. And if you have any questions, grab a board member, grab a pastor. We're happy to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you, Lisa. She said it way better than I ever could have there. And, you know, I think we had talked a little bit last year about growing, and then Ken and I got into this book project that we'd been planning to do, and it took us a little bit longer than we thought. So we are like... On the home stretch, I think I told you last week we have like a rough draft. We've been editing like crazy this week and it is like, it's like so close to this baby being born. So I think in this next year, there really is going to be a push um, between the board and the staff to start getting the word out a little bit more about our church. So I'm excited about that. So back to our sermon series here. We have been using this book right here. I don't know if any of you guys have purchased it. This is Brene Brown's new book, Braving the Wilderness, The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone. 
We've been using this as the basis for our current sermon series, and her book is the result of years and years of her research into shame, vulnerability, belonging, and connection. And what she's trying to do in this book is to provide us with some practical tactics that we can use to help us feel a little less alone in the world. And her work is so congruent, I think, with some of the gospel themes of trying to be free from shame and of having better connections and better relationships with one another that when I think about Brene Brown, she's, a, she's an Episcopalian, actually, I really think of her as like a prophet and as a pastor in our culture right now. I think her work is that important. When I was young, many of you may not know this, but I sang in a children's choir for about 10 years. I sang in the Indianapolis Children's Choir, which is one of the largest children's choirs in the world. And then later I went on and I sang at my choir in undergraduate uh, school at Butler. And so even though I have sung hundreds, maybe even thousands of concerts all around the world in my lifetime, you know when you're a competent artist or when you're part of a competent artistic group, there are just certain performances that stand out because something magical happens on the stage. I see Brandon nodding his head as a theater major. It's like there's something particular. So I remember one time when I was in college, we were singing the Brahms Requiem Mass, which is just like the most incredible requiem. Clues Memorial Hall in Indy, 2,000 seats, and it's this exquisite piece of music. And it wasn't just that all of the notes were right, but there's something that happens when it's like all of the moving parts start to fit together, when the orchestra is playing and the choir is singing and the soloist and the conductor are all moving in this almost like fluid motion where you're almost just like sensing intuitively what's going on. And when all of the notes are sung like so precisely that you're starting to get all of the like, call it like the overtones or the harmonics. I don't know if you guys are music, any of your musicians, but like if you sing two notes perfectly in tune, like the way the acoustic waves meet, it starts to sound some of the tones in like the higher octaves. So if you're singing like perfectly in tune, it actually magnifies the sound of what you're singing. And when that happens, there's something that's like, whoa, that happens on the stage. And I remember that was happening. And it's like all of the emotions were in the room and everybody's feeling it. And when the music is that good, like all of the, the people who are singing, your heartbeats start to beat as one. Your hearts sync up. And that can happen in an audience too, if the music is, is kind of good enough and you're feeling that connection. Everyone's breathing together, your hearts are moving in rhythm, and I can only say that it's like magic. And maybe holy is the word, right? Because holy just means to stand apart. There's just something really sacred about that. And I think this can happen as well like on a sports team, when everything is working exactly right. I don't know if I can get an amen from Adam over there. He's the, one of the football and wrestling coach over at Chelsea. You know, like you're in the zone. Everybody's making all the plays right. It can happen in a dance. It can even happen while we sing in church on a Sunday morning. It can happen to you just as a spectator. I know a lot of you went to the U2 concert that was here. I did not make it, but from all the pictures on Facebook, I was like, wow, there were a lot of people from church that were at that U2 concert. And I hear that was the case that was there. It was just like mesmerizing. And it can sometimes take us by surprise, I think, when something is so perfect and so transcendent that it's like you literally had to be there to understand. And that feeling is what Brene Brown is trying to describe in the chapter that we're looking at this week. And the title of that chapter is Hold Hands, Comma, With Strangers, Period. Hold Hands with Strangers. 
And one of the things that I appreciate most about Brene Brown's work is that she's recognizing that the crisis that we seem to be in as a culture where we're feeling so divided and people are feeling lonely is that it's first and foremost a spiritual crisis. It's not a political crisis, it's a spiritual crisis. And she defines spirituality as recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power that is greater, greater than all of us. And that our connection to that power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. So many of you know, like our vision here at Blue Ocean Faith is to cultivate connection to God, ourselves, each other, and the world around us. And in that little statement, we are trying to articulate this mystical idea that everything is intricately related and bonded. Right? The Apostle Paul writes this to, in the letter to the Colossians. He says, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn all, over all of creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. You can see like Paul's almost like stumbling on his words of trying to articulate this. In him all things are created. In him all things hold together. This is an idea that I think mystics have tried to communicate for millennia. It's like this, the oneness and the unity of the universe that is held together by what we Christians would say is love. Right? If God is love, as the Apostle John tells us, then in love, everything is connected and held together. And we would say, well, we can choose to disconnect, but regardless of whether we disconnect, love still remains. So I think of prayer as being like a way that we, we like consciously connect into this ether of love. And I was like, I was trying to think of a metaphor, and I was like, well, this might be helpful for some of you, and for some of you, it might not be. So I don't know if you play online games where you can like log in, and other people are also logging in, and then you go on like quests together or something. I haven't really done a whole lot of that. I'm, I'm asking my wife for an Xbox One for Christmas. She's saying no. <laughs> but like for me, that feels like one of the best metaphors for prayer. It's almost like like this God of love that is connecting all things together and it's there whether we we're praying or not, but when you're praying, it's like you're consciously like logging into this server while other people are also consciously logging in to this server and it's like this place where you're meeting God and all of the saints in this sort of transcendent space. If that's way too out there for you, that's fine, just discard it. But if that's helpful, it's, oh, it's been a way that's been helpful for me to think about it. In him, all things were created. And we see a similar idea about the connection of all things in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You know, our very, like our beginning, our origin story says that the first human was created from the dirt. And in that, what it's saying is that we are connected to the earth. And then the first human finds life when what? When God comes down and breathes into the nostrils of the human. So it's in this connection, this intimate connection with God that the human finds life. And then the second human, the ancient poem tells us, that second human is fashioned from the rib of the first. It is not good for the human to be alone, Genesis tells us. Humans are inescapably connected to each other, to the earth, to God, and all sorts of terrible things start happening when those connections falter. When we humans, when we disconnect from nature, 
when we start to sequester ourselves into tribal groups, when we start to treat one another in ways that we ourselves wouldn't want to be treated, and when we forget that there's a great spirit that holds all things together, that's when a spiritual crisis unfolds. And our anxiety, whether that's collective or individually, it drives us to break into these tribal affiliations, right? To associate with people that we just perceive to be, quote unquote, like us. You know, back in 2007, I was visiting Kenya. I was there for a couple of months. And there was a presidential election that was taking place. And there was an intense rivalry going on between these two candidates. One of them actually just ran for president again. But anyway, Mui Kabaki was one of them, and the other was uh, Raila Odinga. And so the, the country was really on edge. The election was contested, and it, it erupted into quite a bit of violence. And so 1,500 people died. I was there in Nairobi when there were all of these you know, different protests and things going on on the streets. Over a half a million people were displaced. And what had happened was Kabaki was from the Kikuyu tribe, which is the largest tribe in Kenya. And Raila Odinga was from the Luo tribe, which is the second or third largest tribe. And so, of course, people were fighting, predictably, right down tribal lines. And we are no different. You know, we may not have formal tribe names, but we identify with our people in different settings, whether that's by race or religion or political affiliation. And we do it for a couple of reasons. One, because it's been evolutionarily advantageous for us to be with people who are more likely to protect us. You know, if fighting breaks out, we don't want to stand alone. That's too vulnerable. So we conform to certain norms within a group so that we're not isolated or so we don't become scapegoated within that group. It's like we feel safer. And I will say that as a queer woman, like I do look for safe people and safe groups because they are in fact safer for me than other groups. I mean, that we, we know that there are groups that can do very real harm to you. And I would say any minority group, and probably people of color, especially in the US, know this feeling. And there's nothing wrong with keeping yourself safe. In fact, do, do that. But identifying too strongly with a particular group can cause us to dehumanize other groups of people. And that's the risk that we have to watch ourselves for. Right? They start becoming other to us. And when that happens, it makes it easier to hurt them, to ignore them, or even in extreme cases, to kill them. Now, many of you know that when we go to war with other countries, it's almost inevitable that our troops come up with like nicknames for the people that they're killing, right? In World War II, we called Germans Krauts and Huns and Jerry's. Like you come up with these sort of nicknames and what that does is it actually helps to dehumanize people. You know, the French were called frogs, like something animalistic. And it makes it easier because then you don't see them as much as people. I'll give another example just from recently. If you compare the support for the hurricane relief from Puerto Rico with Houston. You know, the New York Times this last week reported that 54% of Americans surveyed knew that Puerto Rico was part of the United States. So just a little over half of us were aware of that. But of those who knew, 8 out of 10 supported sending aid. Right, so eight out of 10 people who see Puerto Ricans as American citizens support sending aid to them. But of those who didn't believe that Puerto Rico, uh, Puerto Ricans are American, only four out of 10 supported aid, right? So it was like those who identified Puerto Ricans as like in their tribe as Americans wanted to help them. While the majority of the people who saw them as like other didn't wanna help them. It's a little bit different for Houston, right? After Hurricane Harvey. And I think part of that is just because we associate Houston, like we all know that's American. It's on the mainland. And it was weird because I remember watching as, as Houston, you know, was starting to be flooded 
and all of these reports started coming in, and I thought, you know, it's really interesting how even those who are considered undocumented people um, started to be considered part of us. It was like we were able to transcend that, which is, which is good. And I was kind of amazed at how quickly the lines that had just recently been drawn around like, you know, DACA recipients and other undocumented people and talks of walls and all of that stuff were sort of erased when we saw Houston's, uh, Houstonites as like fellow humans in support of need. And there were even assurances that were given from like the sheriff's office and different things that, look, if you're undocumented, we are not going to arrest you, come and get shelter. And I think that association of Houston with America is so much stronger than that of Puerto Rico with America for you know, so many reasons in our national psychology. And what it shows me is that seeing people as part of us helps us care about their well-being. Does that make sense? Like when we see people as part of who we are, we're more likely to care about their well-being. So Brene Brown tells us that in order to believe in this inextricable human connection that's necessary for spiritual health, we have to be able to transcend all of these tribal affiliations. There's an African saying that, that sums this up. It's, I am because you are. No matter who you are, no matter what you believe, I am because you are. We are that connected as human beings. And Brene Brown says that the best way to help us see that all humans are humans and all humans are part of us rather than are them is to show up for collective moments of joy and pain. And that was a surprising answer to me. She says, show up for collective moments of joy and pain. So I know we've talked quite a bit in this church about how people can become part of like a collective mob in scapegoating events, right? We've kind of talked about the negative side of what it means to be in crowds. And we've talked about something called mimetic contagion. And mimetic contagion just means that we've, we've got this biological capacity to mirror or mimic each other's emotions. And oftentimes in crowds, we can mirror each other's fear and each other's anger and that builds into like a mob mentality. I think we saw some of that mob mentality play out in like some of the pre-election um, rallies that were taking place. It's why people do things in crowds they never thought they would do. Right? It's why college kids go and they, they end up setting couches on fire in the streets after their football team wins and they're like, who am I? Because anger and fear are literally contagious in a crowd. But there's a flip side to being able to mimic each other's human desires and emotions in groups. And it means that we can also mimic joy elation, grief, sadness, and pain. And that those tend to be positive experiences for us. So I went to a, a Tigers game with some friends earlier this summer, Adam and Andrea and Rachel and some of her friends from Minnesota were there. I don't tend to love big crowds, but I had forgotten just how fun it is to like sit out there under the open sky and like cheer for a team. And you know that feeling like every time somebody gets a hit or comes in for a run, everybody's like on their feet and they're super excited. It's like what happens at the big house, I imagine. I've actually never been to the big house. But it's, I know, I know. somebody's, I, right Paul? Somebody's gotta like, somebody's gotta uh, rectify that here. <laughs> but it's like that joy that we find in that, it transcends all of our human boundaries. Right? There's young and old and rich and poor and Republican and Democrat all cheering together. And even within the stadium itself, you've got, two te you've got people cheering for both teams. You know, you, maybe a smaller number for the away team. Like, but Rachel's from Minnesota. They were playing the Twins. So she's there in her Minnesota gear and her friends have their Minnesota gear. 
And that didn't matter. It was like we were all excited and it was filled with people expecting fun and that's actually infectious for us. It's a little like watching the Olympics. You know, I actually cry every time the Olympic opening ceremony is on. And I think it brings me to tears because that ritual ceremony, it, it speaks to this higher connection that we have, right? It's actually a spiritual experience with all of our differences. It's saying, what do we humans have in common? You know, it's talking about us as humans. We love sport. We love music. We love dance. We love theater. We love art. And in the Olympics, all of those things come together with those very human stories of like triumph and overcoming. And it's a place where we actually get a little taste of the divine connectedness of us all. And this week when I was thinking about this chapter, I was, I think I was on the elliptical. Sometimes I do my best thinking there while I'm getting my steps as I'm, you know, like, if anybody else wants to be on that Fitbit, uh, this is not in my notes. Anyway, I compete, I compete with people on the Fitbit. If you want to do that, let me know. We'll add you to that. Um, but anyway, so I'm on the elliptical and I'm thinking about like the connectedness of everything. And um, I started thinking about like Jesus feeding the 5,000, which is, you know, kind of an odd story. He's out there with this crowd of, I don't, some accounts say 4,000, some say five. Everybody's hungry. There's no food. And all of a sudden, this boy has, you know, five loaves of bread and two little fishes. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know the song, five loaves of bread and two little fishes. And then Jesus multiplies it. And what I kept thinking about was how, like, crowds can be places where we experience abundance. And I think that's what Brene Brown's getting at. Crowds can be places where we experience abundance. And she says that these collective assemblies, they fill us with a sense of meaning, increased positive effect, an increased sense of social connection and a decreased sense of loneliness, which are all essential components of a healthy, happy life. That's her quote. We can also experience collective sadness and grief. She tells us that being alone in the midst of a widely reported trauma, watching endless hours of 24-hour news or reading countless articles on the internet is the quickest way for anxiety and fear to tiptoe into your heart and plant roots of secondary trauma. My wife will testify that I am personally prone to this. Oh man, hurricanes fascinate me. But I think that having more knowledge gives me some kind of an illusion of control. Like when the Vegas shooting happened a couple of weeks back, I was like on the internet immediately. They didn't know much about the shooter and I was like, I'm good at the internet. I'm gonna find out more before the news organizations even get there. I'm trying to figure out things about him. And I think it's just like a vain attempt to assure myself that something like this couldn't happen to me because, I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'd be able to spot somebody like that, which is bogus. You know, mass shootings and bombings and police killings and hurricanes and natural disasters, they make us feel vulnerable because we are vulnerable. And there are things in this life that we cannot control, and there are things that will just absolutely tear our hearts apart. But in sequestering ourselves away, that only deepens our fears and our sense of vulnerability. She says, showing up to some place to experience grief with others is what helps. Whether that's a small group of people that you're meeting out or a larger collection of people. I know like right after the election last November, many of us were feeling really awful and Ken did something that I thought was very, very smart. And he, he just like had everybody come over and sit Shiva, which is like a Jewish, um, what would you say, ritual? Jewish ritual. Yeah, a morning ritual where you could go and just be together and share your fears. And I know that was like a balm for many of our souls. And those of us in this room who were alive back in 2001 to experience 9-11, like we all know exactly where we were when that happened. 
and myself included, we all had our eyes glued to the TV screen watching the stuff go on over and over. And at that time, I was, just, I was just out of college, and I wasn't really practicing any form of faith at the time. And I wasn't sure how I felt about the whole God thing, but I remember like desperately longing to be pe- with people in a church to grieve together, which I thought was a weird longing considering where I was at. And so I had somehow heard about a noontime prayer gathering that was going on downtown Indianapolis where I lived. There was a beautiful little Episcopalian church right down there on the circle, if any of you know Indy. I think it's called Christ Church Cathedral. And so I made my way way there, and I remember just sitting there by myself in one of those, you know, they had like the old um, pews, the wooden pews, and I just remember feeling this kind of comfort of just sitting in grief with other people, even though they were strangers. It was like our grief and our common humanity transcended my lack of faith and even my sorrow which is why funerals are so important. Brene Brown says they're one of the most powerful examples of collective pain. And I'll just insert this. This is also not in my notes. We do grief so badly in our culture. You know, so many cultures, like you at least get to wear black for a year or two so that other people know that you're grieving and can kind of share in that communally. We do that so poorly. You know, funerals are like the place where we do this. And Brene Brown said that in her research, she asked participants to name three to five very specific behaviors that their friends, their family, and their colleagues did to help build trust with them. Right? You have to have trust to have a good relationship. What are three to five things that people do specifically to build their trust? And she said, funerals, attending funerals always emerged in the top three. You know, like in my family, we just always, you always go to the funeral, you always go. Right? You don't always remember who was at your wedding, but you will remember who attended your spouse's or your mom's or your brother's funeral. You know, that showing up matters and showing up testifies to our collective humanity and it testifies to our capacity to love. Right? That's the reason that we ritualize death. We ritualize death to commemorate love. Love and joy and death and loss and grief, these are like life's great equalizers. We all share these things. And one of the most poignant examples in the scriptures where I see this sort of collective mourning is in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so I'm going to read a little bit from Nehemiah, but first I just want to just set the scene a little bit. So the, the books of Ezra, and, oh, I'm going to fall off the edge here. I'll ground myself. Ezra and Nehemiah, takes place about five, six hundred years uh, BCE, before Jesus is born. And what's happened is the Babylonians have come and they've just ransacked the city of Jerusalem. They broke down the walls, they started just burning everything down, they tore the temple down, they killed thousands of people. And then they took some of the elites in the city and they took them and they carried them off into exile in Babylon. And this included like the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel who have their own books in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah remained there in Jerusalem. I was trying to think of like a good picture. Like if you've seen any of the pictures of like Raqqa, Syria recently, like just think about like that, like Babylon just completely came in and decimated it and the place is in ruins. And so after 70 years of being off in exile, the Babylonians finally agreed to allow those elites to return to Jerusalem and to start to rebuild it. And so Nehemiah, who is like the governor, and Ezra, who was a priest, lead this effort. So they take the people back to their homeland. And of course, they're healing from this incredible trauma of the previous decades. So here's Nehemiah 8. It says, All the people came together as one 
in the square before the water gate. So this is in the ruins of Jerusalem. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest, he brought the law before the entire assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And Ezra, the teacher of the law, he stood on a high wooden platform built just for that occasion, and he opened the book, and all of the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all of the people lifted their hands, and they responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then the priests instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. And they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and the teacher and all of the priests who were instructing the people said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the priest calmed all the people saying, be still, this is a holy day, do not grieve. And then all of the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And when I read this, I thought, man, you just see all of the people coming together as one, it says, to mourn and to remember what it is they have in common, right? They were sitting there trying to reestablish their identity. And it says that as the law of Moses was read to them, they wept. And if you're picturing it, that means that they wept from sunup to noontime, right? That's how long it says that they read it. They wept and they wailed from sunup to noontime and their hearts are just broken because everything is gone. And they needed to be together in order to survive the pain of that. And then Nehemiah and Ezra, after curating this mass ritual of grief and of rediscovering their identity as a Hebrew people, they led the people to experience collective hope and joy. Right? They were trying to take them just from the grief into being able to see some hope. And so they started to speak peace over the group. Peace, be still. This isn't the time to mourn. We had the time to mourn this morning. This is the time, go and celebrate. And eat good food and drink good wine. And those who don't have it, share it with them. And be together and practice gratitude. Brene Brown says joy is the most vulnerable emotion that we feel. And she says it's because it's hard for us humans to embrace joy when we know that joy doesn't always last. And I can just imagine how hard it was for people who had experienced so much pain and loss to celebrate. It would be like people who had been refugees for decades. Because when we celebrate, it is oh so very human to not fully enjoy it because we tend to remind ourselves that joy will not always be. So like you're at a beautiful Christmas celebration, but you're thinking about how grandma may or may not be here next year, and this will be the last year that we have together. Or you're at your kid's soccer game, and you're thinking about how they're going to grow up and be gone so fast, and you won't even know what hit you. It's this idea of just anticipating loss, and we all do it. And Brene Brown calls this foreboding joy. 
And the best way to combat it, he says, is gratitude. It's to cultivate thankfulness and gratitude in our lives. And so what I see Ezra and Nehemiah doing there is trying to lead in this way and having people celebrate the return. Like you can grieve the loss, but also be thankful and celebrate what it is that you have and what we have before us. And that doesn't erase the pain, but what it does do is it helps foster connection and hope. So showing up for collective events, whether it's church, whether it's protests, whether it's concerts, or even just investing in relationships that are important to you, that takes some work. And I know, I'm an introvert, and I'm a pretty strong one, which surprises some people. Um, I know many of you are also introverts in this church, and it can sometimes take some work to show up. You know, I love people, so usually I'm game. I'm usually glad that I showed up, but I know some people really experience group anxiety, and it can be hard to get over that barrier and get out the door. But Brown tells us that the price of not showing up is really high. So there's another book called The Village Effect, and the author Susan Pinker says that neglecting to keep in close contact with people who are important to you is at least as dangerous to your health as a pack-a-day cigarette habit, hypertension, or obesity. I'm going to say that again because that was like mind-blowing. And I know Ra- like when Rachel did her study too, she found that like the, the, the effects of being in a group that's really good, like the health benefits are enormous. Neglecting to keep in close contact with people who are important to you is at least as dangerous to your health as a pack-a-day cigarette habit, hypertension, or obesity. And I know life can get super busy, especially if you've got like little ones running around but it is worth investing in that once a month breakfast with your colleague. It's worth making your weekly volleyball game as Rachel does and then going out for drinks with people afterwards. And I might be biased, but churches can be a great source of long-time connections, except when they go sour, as we all know. But churches can be a great source of that. And when Rachel did her, her research for what's now her book, Unnatural, her initial question as a gay woman was, is, it, is church good for me as a gay Christian? Or is it so toxic that the benefits of a spiritual community actually don't outweigh the negatives? And what she found was is if you're dehumanized in a church, then church isn't good for you. And I'm saying this in part for the benefit of some of the serendipity doodah moms who are joining us online, many of them who cannot find a spiritual connection in a church. If you're dehumanized in a church, if your child's dehumanized, if you're not fully accepted for standing with your child, it's actually not good for you. But if the church fully accepts you, the benefits are great. So we are very glad to have those moms who can't find a space join us online so that they can at least connect in and be part of an extended community of people. Because the power of being part of a church is coming together every week to break bread together, to sing songs with people you might not otherwise come in contact with in your life. And when we learn together, we're building a common language and a common framework for how to be in community. You know, when we, when we break bread, I think it's one of the most beautiful rituals that we have in our faith. When we come to the table of God, what we are doing is declaring that everyone is welcome. We're trying to transcend those tribal boundaries. No matter where you come from, no matter where you're at in your life, you are welcome at this table. And we are declaring the end of scapegoating. The end of scapegoating. Right. Everybody comes here and everyone can eat of this table as one family. We're declaring a new day, one in which we are all desired and fiercely wanted at this table. So I'm going to close out here with a little meditation. We often do a two or three minute meditation together. 
either silent or guided. I think we'll do a little guided one today. People, babies make noise. It doesn't have to be perfectly quiet. Have you do is just kind of settle yourselves, get comfortable, take a couple deep breaths, wake yourself up, <laughs> calm our minds. And what I'd like you to start by doing is use your imagination to think of a giant place where people are like all together, whether that's an arena or a cathedral or an outdoor space, but something where there's like thousands of people who are gathered together. Find that place for you. And then spend some time looking around, noticing who's there, what do they look like, what's it smell like? What kind of sounds do you hear? What colors are in your mind? Give it some shape. Now imagine that a silence has descended into that space and that Jesus has invited everyone to just start offering their prayers. First silently and then out loud where everyone is just offering their prayers right there together in that space. And as you're doing that, you can offer your real prayers if you have anyone that you're thinking or anything you're wanting to request petition the Lord about. going to wind us down by praying a prayer that's based on the letter to the Ephesians. Christ is our peace who has made us one. He has broken down the barriers which divided us. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us patience, endurance, encouragement, and a spirit of unity as we follow Christ Jesus. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else might hinder us from godly union. 
Give us one heart and one mouth so that we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As there is only one body and one spirit and one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, may we accept one another just as Christ accepted us so that we may bring praise to God. Amen.